This crisis and threat narrative has been foundational to the settlement of what's now called the United States and has always been used to justify conquest, genocide, slavery, wars. Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Are you an inventor or do you know an inventor? Welcome to the Border Chronicle podcast. You can find us at the borderchronicle.com where we publish articles and audio every Tuesday and Thursday. By we, I mean myself, Todd Miller, and Melissa Del Bosque. Um, and there you could become a subscriber. Um, we offer a lot of free content, but we always appreciate people that become paid subscribers. So please consider that. And um, today, I feel so fortunate and honored to have on um, somebody I've known for a very long time, Mizui Aizaki. Um, and Mizui is the director and the founder of the Surveillance Resistance Lab. And um, she, well, the Surveillance Re Resistance Lab, which of course I'm going to ask Mizui about, as we, as we all know. But the Surveillance Resistance Lab is a think and act tank um, that... Um, that creates networks of collaboration, um, taking on the threat of surveillance. Um, in, in, and as I, I read in the, at the nexus of, um, of state and corporate power. So we will be asking about that. I'm very um, intrigued to learn more about the, the surveillance resistance lab. Mizui is also editor and an author in a book that just came out from Haymarket Books, called Resisting Borders and the Technologies of Violence. And Mizui will be talking about that. I was actually fortunate enough to help write one of the chapters um, with geographer Joseph Nevins in that in, in, in that book as well. So, um, but we'll talk about that more. Um, uh, welcome, first welcome Mizui to the Border Chronicle podcast. Thanks so much for having me here, Todd. I have so much appreciation for uh, the work that you and Melissa do in the Border Chronicle. And of course, I've been I've learned so much from your research and advocacy over the years. So great to be in conversation with you. Thank you, Mazui. It's great. Yeah, it's um and likewise. Um so I wanted to start out by asking you a question. And of course, the elephant in the room question is we're in election year. It's already so obvious that we're in this election year. Um the border is getting a lot of attention right off the bat, you know, we're barely, you know, we're in January and, uh, and we're hearing about, um, the, um, the border con, like the take back the border convoy, for example, and the standoff in Texas and, and all kinds of things about the border. Um, we're hearing the kind of national narratives that are, that float around left and right. They, uh, quote unquote open borders you know you hear you hear that quite a bit and what the reason I bring all that up is because um at least I feel that the discussion on the border which is one of those things that gets a lot of focus in these election years 
that that sort of conversation gets is is really reductive um and it it doesn't include so many things and and particularly the stuff that you focus on in your work you know when you think about um surveillance technology the digitization of the border those sorts of things um so that's how i wanted to start today um when we're thinking about you know what it like the the this this surveillance apparatus that you've been focusing on in with the surveillance resistance lab and the new book um what is it that that is being missed in the discussions on the border right now and um what do you think the public should know that's a great question, Todd. I mean, I really love this question of how much is being missed at the moment, because uh, it really gets to the heart of how the state violence and corporate interests that underlie the migration control regime are so pernicious and powerful, and how normalized um, the scale of deprivation of rights in relation to migration control has become. In other words, like think if we can understand who controls the narrative and who it serves and what's missing, it's very key for us to figure out how we're going to dismantle these systems of oppression. Um, you know, what is always so striking to me as someone who's been involved in uh, immigrant rights or migrant justice issues for over two decades um, is how the U.S. mainstream narrative about immigration so comfortably reverts back to these age-old narratives of dangerous hordes and threats to safety, right? And this crisis and threat narrative has been foundational to the settlement of what's now called the United States and has always been used to justify conquest, genocide, slavery, wars, and of course, uh, the state's ability to restrict mobility, uh, residency, and liberty. Right. And it's always some form of surveillance, whether it's through human surveillance, biometrics collection or technology, as we're experiencing in uh, today. Um, it's always been a very critical part of these systems of imperial conquest and control, but they're so often not thought of that way. And, you know, so I think the focus on narrative is really clear because it's a critical part. It reflects the idea ideological system um, that we have we live under that we have to combat. So when we're thinking about like what's missing from the narrative, there's a few points that really jump out at me. Um, there's a lot more, but I just wanted to talk about a few of them. One, the first is how the problem is broadly framed, right? If the problem is framed as one uh, uh, that the U.S. is under threat, U.S. stability is under threat by uh, the chaos at the border, um, then the tools of economic and political dominance to maintain that stability aren't problematized, right? And border bordering itself isn't seen as the problem. So in this worldview, borders and control systems to reinforce U.S. sovereignty, uh, which means, you know, the ability to determine who gets to live and who must die, right? Um, they're seen as legitimate, and then the problem then becomes the unauthorized migration. So what happens if we see the problem differently, right? If we acknowledge that human rights and the right to live are in direct conflict with bordering regimes? And what if we acknowledge that borders are a form of state violence that reinforce global inequality and unequal access to life? And what if we see migration for many um, as an outgrowth of political and economic instability, climate crisis, that's been fueled by legacies of colonialism, military intervention, neoliberalism by the very countries that are investing billions in walls and technologies and police 
to keep people out, right? So if we can see the problem this way, then we can come up with different solutions, you know, and uh, you and I worked on a report, right, with Joseph Nevins, mm -hmm. uh, Jeffrey Boyce, and Miriam Tickton on this called Smart Borders or a Humane World. Um, just another point that I want to make, and I heard this in uh, one of the podcasts that the Border Chronicle did on asylum, is this point that's often made that people need to follow the rules, right? What if we started to understand or the narrative was such that the rules that people are being asked to follow are fundamentally unjust, exclusionary, and punitive, right? Like race, class, and place bias are baked into U.S. immigration laws. Um, and just like most reasonable people wouldn't see Jim Crow or apartheid as neutral legal regimes, we have to start seeing the U.S. immigration legal regime in the same way. And, you know, one example of this in terms of the border is, you know, for those of us who have worked on any aspect of immigration law, right, whether it's asylum rights, uh, the right to remain in the United States, even after decades of residency, if you have a criminal conviction and a green card, or undocumented people who don't have any pathway to citizenship after decades of residency. You know, I think it's really an interesting thing to reflect on how um, the ability for the U.S. to control territory to achieve migration control is so broad, right? Um, yet the rights where people have to ask for asylum are increasingly becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, right? To the point now, for some people, you have to request asylum through an app on a smartphone in a particular location, right? Um, and, you know, there's this one example that I find really striking of where a Border Patrol agent shot a Mexican citizen, you might re recall this, um, at the border. And he, when he fell, the borderline cut through his waist and the U.S. determined that since he was most his body was mostly in Mexico, his family didn't have the right to sue the United States. Right. And so I think this is just one example of how there's such a micro distinction of where rights apply for some people, yet they take very big liberty to expand their power to control migration across the globe. Um, you know, and the last point that I think is is missing uh, that I'll name, which is what you helped us see so clearly in Empire of Borders, is what we're really tackling. And this is a, one of the projects of the Surveillance Resistance Lab um, in partnership with R3D based in Mexico and ILID at Temple University. We call it the Everywhere Border Project, is exactly that point, right? We've reached a point where now the U.S. border regime control is everywhere, not just at the uh, international boundaries, but deep into U.S. territory, but also far beyond, right, through Mexico, Central America, South America, Caribbean, and beyond. And this is where I think the focus of uh, surveillance technology and digitization of the border is something that we really have to understand and grapple with. One of the things that always that strikes me is, is in the kind of partisan um, way that uh, the the um, border is discussed in like this in these times, like an election year, it, it it's often they it's often that you know the, the each political like where the border the each political party are supposedly on opposite sides of it, right? Like there's there you're gonna have the mega Trump side, and then you have the Biden side, and and then the national discourses the discourse um 
you know, kind of follows that. And I say national, a lot of local, more local, or there's a journalist that see through it, but, but I'm just speaking to a tendency. And, um, but at the same time, you know, when you think about your, the work on technology and, and that idea, like the, I, the, that's very striking, the title everywhere border, you know, that every, or every, the everywhere, is that what it was called? The everywhere. Yeah, the the idea that it's omnipresent, right? And and it reminds me of when Biden took office or one of his campaign promises was to not build another foot of wall, but you know, the next part of the the you know, he's he wrote that. He's like, I'm not gonna build another foot of wall. And then you pause there and you go, Oh, what's he gonna, you know, is he gonna say something like is he gonna spend the money on healthcare or you know, something like that? But the next the next uh clause was We'll, we'll focus on technology um, instead. And which which the whole point, like the, the whole idea of that framing of the sentence, the wall is something nasty and awful, but the technology was going to be something more, something humane, a more humane of way um, to enforce the border. And imagining like that might be something that we might see more of uh, this coming year. I don't know if you could comment on about that kind of discrepancy. Yeah, I mean, you said a few different things there that I want to touch on. You know, one is this point around um, the difference between the Democratic and Republican position or the Trump versus Biden. And I think, you know, that's something that we've all been very um, disappointed, I don't think captures the quite the word, but alarmed, honestly, at how the consensus around the extreme deprivation of rights as it relates to border policing has um, been embraced by both parties. And, you know, I think that, you know, to your point around what's missing often is like, as these things become normalized, right, this border policing regime, the history is often hidden. And while it's obviously a continuum of like the founding of the United States, as I mentioned earlier, it's actually a, a really contemporary phenomenon, right? To have so much federal investment as you document in the, what was it called? More than a wall? No. Oh yeah, more than a wall, yeah. More yeah. than a wall, a wall, right? To think about billions and billions of dollars and how it's become an integral part of the US economic system, right? To have... um an investment in surveillance technologies and other type of infrastructure to keep people out or in in detention facilities um, or to just surveil where they are all the time. And so I guess, sorry, I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but it's 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 a unusual, when I think about the, the arc of my political work on this issue, you know, I started working on immigration issues before the 1996 laws were passed. Right. And so I remember in 1994, when the issue like, you know, the right wing movement grew up around Pete Wilson in California, Governor Pete Wilson at the time and Proposition 187 and this whole notion of depriving public benefits from um, undocumented people really took a hold. Right. As like the ascendancy of kind of like the right wing xenophobic movement coming out of Southern California and. You know, it's interesting to see that the narrative there was so clearly racialized around uh, immigrants being a drain on on the welfare system, right? And the whole idea of like criminality was really not very visible. And you know, then you go kind of 
go 9-11 happens, President uh, Bush founds, uh, starts his war on terror and founds the Department of Homeland Security. And the focus really there, as we uh, remember, was on Muslims, right? His targeting of Muslims and the extreme surveillance there and deep detention and deportation, but then also undocumented workers as a threat to the economy, right? And then when Obama came, and I, I go through this history because I just think it's really important for people to recognize this, this idea of a uh, undocumented or immigrant or a green card holder with a criminal conviction being a threat to, to safety was something that was so deliberately constructed and visibly constructed under the Obama administration at a time when the Democratic Party was trying to broker a deal, right, for some kind of comprehensive immigration reform, right? So if we get a pathway to citizenship, then let's that be the carrot, but the stick is going to be a stronger border patrol, more border policing, and deportation of particular people that we've constructed as being a threat. And so in that work, you know, I spent uh, many, many years kind of fighting the ascendancy of what we call the police to deportation pipeline, which is then all this, um, you know, the, the automatic data sharing that started to happen between local police and immigration police at this time, which enabled mass deportation. And so I think on this point around consensus building in the Democratic and Republican parties, what is really a shame in this moment is there is no immigration reform on the table even, right? So even if we were just like, I I wouldn't say that it would have been necessarily positive to have immigration reform that reinforced the structures that we're fighting now, but at least there was a fighting chance for somebody to get some, some rights. Now the landscape, it's like, you know, that level of negotiation, it's almost like it became, it's become even um, so invisibilized in some ways that this is why the trajectory happened that way in the first place. Am I making sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I think kind of what, what you're, what you're talking about and kind of, sorry, then there's another question I know about the technology, but what you're talking about in terms of assessing kind of the Biden moment in relationship to, as a reaction to Trump is how readily the Democrats have allowed kind of the right-wing narratives and kind of this law and order and uh, war on crime narratives to dominate um, the immigration control regime. And now that we're like 25 years out, right? Like this is what we're dealing with is um, this monstrous government apparatus that's structured an entire e economy behind policing people um, and surveilling them, um, which makes, to your second point, this point around a smart border system being so humane as completely nonsensical, right? And really relying on technology as a mask, as a, a neutral, you know, trying to make it seem like it's a neutral solution uh, to a problem that they've they've defined and constructed, but also one that um, conceals the powers and the interests and the control function that exists behind these technologies. Sorry, that yeah. was a mouthful. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And it actually segues into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. Like when you, when we think about these technologies, um, 
or the the kind of surveillance apparatus. And I mean, given that other things about the border um get more attention, but the way they, the way I look at it, this kind of surveillance apparatus needs to get a lot more attention. So one, um, how big and extensive is this thing? And I know you're talking about the externalization too, so you can add that. But two, I, I wanted to hear more about the surveillance resistance lab and maybe, you know, how, why, I mean, I know like how long has it been? It's been for two years now or one year? Is it, it's not, it hasn't two years? That's about one year. About one year, right? So it's, you just started it. So I wanted to maybe hear about, you know, how you, why you started it, you know, what were the reasons behind it? And then if you could go into, what are we looking at here? How big is this, this surveillance thing? Um, yeah. So, you know, the surveillance resistance lab grows out of work that I had been doing previously at the immigrant defense project. Um, as I had mentioned during the Obama administration, just at the very beginning of it, um, the Obama administration latched on to something that was piloted under George um, W. Bush, which was a, a program called Secure Communities, that they call Secure Communities, mm -hmm. where fingerprints that were taken at booking by the police would be automatically sent, which are sent to the FBI, would be automatically sent to the Department of Homeland Security, and they could then tell the police whether they wanted them to hold them. Uh, once they were released from criminal custody for ICE to come pick them up. So people might be familiar with this um, as like there were a lot of detainer policies. You know, a detainer is the request from ICE to um, hold the person after their release. And so when you hear about Trump talking about sanctuary city policies, a lot of times this is what this refers to, right? Policies that limit police and jail um, collaboration with ICE. So um I think one of the things that was really interesting being part of the organizing around that was to see how both like the FBI and the DHS were kind of like in this post 9-11 moment, really grappling with a, a cornerstone of what they had um, thought was was a real gap in their intelligence infrastructure was interoperability, right? Having all these databases communicate from local, state, federal um you know, not just within the United States, but globally. And so um, it was just in evolution, I think, at that time. But since then, you know, to your question of like, what are we dealing with? Like, we don't really know. You know, what we do know is that the U.S. government is trying to build one of the world's largest biometric systems, right? Um, the heart system, which it will... What does that stand for, heart what do you mean by heart system? It's the whole, well, I knew you would ask me that heart. We did a report on it. I always forget what it's called. Heart. I think it's, uh, let me think if I, I can remember. Um, Advanced recognition technology. Yeah, system. that's it. <laughs> okay. Um, and so it's a biometric, massive biometric database, which is going to share, uh, collect and organize and share data on over like 270 million people. Um, and this data is going to come from all sorts of policing agencies within the United States, but also foreign governments, right, um, and different federal agencies. And even like even right now, like the UN, when they collect um, 
biometrics on refugees, they have a agreement to share that with the United States, right? And so, um, you know, I don't know if you recall during the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq that they were collecting biometrics on everybody, civilians, right? And it was part the D the Department of Defense. And so they were calling this a program of identity dominance, right? That we are going to dominate the world by knowing who everybody is, right? And they so use, they, they use that term, identity that's dominance. The, that's their term, identity dominance, right? So DNA, um, iris scans, and fingerprints were the three main biometrics that they collected. And then, you know, we hear um, during the Trump administration, right, that the DHS is collecting DNA now of every person in uh, ICE custody or trying to get DNA on every person in ICE custody. We're hearing uh, reports from our Everywhere Border Project of throughout Mexico and Central America, people who encounter checkpoint after checkpoint where they get their fingerprints usually taken, sometimes their irises, right, um, by different governments, right? You know, I think part of what uh, this focus on externalization, and you know this well, Todd, but I feel like people may not be aware at the scale of how much this, uh, you know, the U.S. immigration policing and detention and deportation apparatus has spread, right? So like Mexico now currently, um has like one of the largest detention capacities in the world, right? Mostly funded through the United States and deports more people to Central America regularly over the past like 10 years than the U.S. does, right? So we think about how, you know, the U.S. border continually moving outwards um, into the seas, you know, kind of Southern Mexico border and now in Panama, right? Where you have um, the U.S. collaborating with a the government there, you know, one of the things that really drew me to, to start the surveillance resistance lab was really grappling with uh, what we call these like durable infrastructures of control, right? So once you have a system now where all the criminal history collected in the United States is shared then with police in Mexico and El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras, you know, and so you have all these database sharings, you have biometric sharing, you have... um smartphone surveillance that uh, we know that the Border Patrol, you know, uh, conducts. And then you have an asylum system that requires you to show, you know, use facial recognition on a smartphone. It's like, what kind of possibilities is that leaving open to like construct another type of world, right? One in which um, policing and kind of uh, control and state violence don't dominate these systems. And so, um, you know, I think to your question, you know, like ICE has a, a global policing presence that is, uh, you know, what is it? 86 foreign offices now in foreign countries, right? Something like Something that. Something like that. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot. They train their police, right? They reform their court systems. They um, set up data sharing systems. You know, I think part of what we're trying to do in this work at the Surveillance Resistance Lab is to, you know, this is not, some of this is publicly available, but a lot of it just isn't, right? And so, you know, and a lot of this is driven by states, but it's in very close partnership with corporations, right? And so once you have corporation controlling these uh, infrastructures that um, with the, uh, 
clear intention of policing and controlling people, like we have even less accountability, I think, than we did. And so like, this is kind of what we're grappling with. So one of the things that we're, we're building as part of our Everywhere Border Project is a network of um, organizers and uh, human rights monitors and advocates across uh, through Mexico, Central America, and beyond um, to both share kind of what we're seeing happening on the ground um, and different ways that we can also collectively combat them um, because the reach of these systems is really vast and the harms yeah. are and the harms you can finish. are very deep and deep yeah um is there like um um so the border everywhere project is that or the everywhere border project is that um is that ongoing right now is that yeah we just started it i mean the lab just started last january uh we started this pilot project i think last spring and so we are continuing to build that up um we also did a piece in the Transnational Institute State of Power, if you want to check that out, the Everywhere Border. State of Power. It's called the title State of Power. They do. You know how they do like the State of Power issues annually? There's They, okay. have, a, they gotcha. have a digital yeah. State of Power and it's in the, mm -hmm. it's the one from 2000. And, and it's titled Everywhere Border. Everywhere border. Okay. All right. So look that up, people. <laughs> I'll put it in the I'll put it in the write-up of the podcast as well. So you can um look at it there. And speaking of write-ups, um, I wanted to uh also ask you about the new book, the Resisting Borders and Technologies of Violence book. And I assume that uh, like um well i know that most of it a lot of it goes hand in hand with the surveillance resistance lab but did you want um if you could just give uh a few like tell people what the book's about and maybe some things that you think are important in this book to consider or why people should pick up a copy of the book yeah thanks todd um you know i the book is really about um focusing on this issue of smart borders, uh, but the looking at it from a historical continuum of how, you know, how I had talked about, like, you can't separate these practices from uh, the colonial and imperial practices. We put the United States and the European Union in conversation with each other as two of the biggest um, former or current, rather, former colonial, current imperial powers. Um, and ones that have invested extremely heavily in leading the way in terms of uh, both bordering, uh, border policing, but uh, deployment of technology, surveillance technologies um, in service of bordering. And we try to, um, it's an anthology. We we tried to pull together people who have our scholars, organizers, um, who've been focused on different aspects of this issue as it plays out. Um, at the actual international boundaries itself, people who focus on externalization like yourself, um, people who focus on uh, ICE poli immigration policing in the interior, but then also thinking about bordering very broadly. How is it that it's impacted um, policing inside our cities? You know, what uh, uh, do digital ID systems, how do they become tools of increasing like state coercion and corporate power? 
And then looking at this idea of the smart city itself, how cities, as they invest in technological infrastructures, how frequently they become ways of increasing carcerality, state violence, and corporate power. And the book came out of a campaign that I was involved in in New York City. Uh, we had a municipal ID for undocumented people that, and mostly undocumented people that came up um, in 2014 under the second Obama presidency, because, you know, people need state issued IDs very frequently to get into buildings and stuff in New York. And this is before, and we wanted something that was more secure than the driver's licenses turned out to be for undocumented people. You know, people may or may not be aware that once uh, undocumented people were able to get driver's licenses, ICE definitely used that system as a way to surveil and target people for ICE. And so, um, when we started, we had this ID put in place in 2014, and then we found out in the very early part of the Trump administration that the city wanted to put a, a, a smart chip on the, on the ID as a way to um, allow people to have all their health and medical records on their ID as a way to get uh, their subway fare, a tap-and-go system. Um, and then also to track, you know, uh, unhoused people in New York and when they're staying at shelters and that kind of thing. And so we ran a campaign uh, to prevent the city from putting this, making the digital ID a, a surveillance tool for police, including ICE police. And, you know, in that work, it became really clear around this issue of uh, digital IDs being a really important system of both biometric collection and kind of state control and surveillance in other countries, right? Um, Kenya and India and elsewhere. And we had just thought as, and we were learning about like this digital ID um, initiative in New York City was kind of framed as like a smart city um, initiative. And so we just started talking to a lot of people, you know, looking at technology and how it's being deployed in ways that like increase, you know, uh, whether it's carcerality or state power or data extraction and, and corporate power. And I felt like, um, sorry, one other point around this book, after working on the US, you know, uh, deportation issues for over a decade, I started to, you know, and then when the CIR collapsed um, in the United States, comprehensive immigration reform, I just felt, started to feel like we, needed to be able to understand better the global aspects of this U.S. kind of migration control regime. And so all that stuff came together to help make this anthology. Very good. And um, I also acknowledge that it's not just me. I have two co-editors, uh, Matt McFoody and um, Colleen Schuper. And so uh, we've worked together on this. Yeah, it's quite a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's quite, it's a very good book. In fact, if I highly recommend it, especially people who are interested in everything that Mizui is talking about right now. Um, and it, it came out in at the end of the year, right? With through Haymarket Books, correct? At the very tail end, December. It's part of their fall catalog, but it's not. Um, and I think you got your copies already, but it's actually coming out on February thirteenth. Oh well, I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm saying it came out, but it it actually has not. So we are previewing a book that you can have that isn't coming out. Well, it will be coming out very in the next 
next few days. Um, Yes. yeah. And we are having an online launch event through uh, Haymarket, so check it out on their website. That's going to be on February 15th. February 15th for the online launch event. Great. That sounds great. Um, yeah. So I guess that brings me to maybe our last question. Um, and the last question that I have is, I mean, I want to go back to this year, the election year, and put all of this again, all of what, all this information and um, that you've been talking about um, into context of this of what we're dealing with right now in this moment and it seems to me i want you know as we look forward into the future um it seems like from the republican side you're going to get it's looking like a donald trump candidacy and surely the border is going to be central to that um and we already can predict what is going to happen on that end Um, though you can comment on that, but I'm curious, you know, what you, what do you see, um, going forward, um, in this, I'm particularly interested in how like the Democrats response this year to, to, um, to this, to what's going like the, the Republican side, but also like, um, given like all the stuff, the, the kind of everywhere border, the, um, the omnipresent surveillance system that that we've been talking about i mean what do you think you know there's an election year so there's that but what do you think people could do about it or what what do you think are some actions that people might take or what what would you what would be some suggestions that you might have um for people who are concerned about these things especially in the context of this year Um, well, that's an easy question. Not, um, you know, you know, I, <laughs> sorry, I, man, I think it's a dangerous time, Todd, you know, one of the things that xenophobia is so foundation or such a useful tool for is authoritarianism, as we know. And I think this um the instability of the economic systems and the inequality that drives this world has you know the narratives that explain it have been captured to a large extent in the dominant sense from those people who are very comfortable blaming right uh non-white people, uh, immigrants, um, people with different political views as the threat. And I do think that there is a lot of consensus between the Democrats and the Republicans around borders, but I don't think they're the same, right? And I think, you know, to your point of like, what do we have to look, look out for if Trump gets reelected? You know, Stephen Miller was very happy to share with the New York Times, right, last November, this article of all the horrors that they are ready to unleash if Trump wins again, and how they are confident that they don't actually need any congressional approval or any change in laws to be able to do that. And so, and if Democrats win, you know, I think we're going to be seeing a bit more 
of the same of what we're seeing now, right? Some way of trying to make compromises with Republican senators on uh, the most minimal observation of the continually shrinking set of rights that people have, right, to, to some kind of authorized migration. And then we might see um, more opportunities for the types of migration that businesses are pushing for, right, like uh, certain types of visas and things like that. In terms of what I always feel like um, is a thing that we need to do is like, I guess, three things. One is to understand as much as we can about how we got here, right? And kind of some of the powers, the powers that underlie kind of bordering regimes and to really understand border regimes as fundamentally um, ones of control, right? And a certain world order. And for that, I recommend your chapter in this book of resisting borders and technologies of violence, right? Your years and Joe's, right? How do we understand borders as a function of empire and global apartheid? Number one, Harsha Walia writes around about that too. I think the other piece is, um, you know, the Everywhere Border Project and building with people outside of the United States is so refreshing to me because for them, they don't have like this kind of, uh, what do we call it, smog or smoke of like the US narrative, right? It's it's very clear to them, kind of the state violence and like the corporate powers and the neoliberalism and uh, the impacts of US ongoing intervention in these areas. Um, and so I think really thinking about uh, meaningful solidarity and how we can kind of build with people across borders is feels really um, critical to me. And then I think the last thing is, um, you know, the immigration system in the United States is challenging because it's governed by federal laws, right? But there's just been a lot ever since the beginning of time, right? Local organizing, um, to, to both provide support and create spaces for power building uh, towards the type of world that we want to see. And so I would just encourage people to think about how we can chip away at this system um, by really building um, collaborations and uh, campaign work uh, where we are based and with our communities. That sounds like really good recommendations, Mizui. Thanks. So tough question, but I think <laughs> I think yeah, you gotta start somewhere, right? Um, can you can let I people know? Oh, go ahead. I do want to say one more thing. I do think it's really important to actually think about DHS as an institution, right? As a US government agency, it's fairly new, right? Uh it's what now 21 years old almost. Um it is now one of the, the most militarized entities, right, after the Pentagon. It's definitely evolved in its mission since it started, but now it's like becoming like the monster that swallows everything, right? Um, FEMA response, right? Like now they're in charge of the AI, um, you know, the artificial intelligence um, administration under Biden. And, you know, 
I think like the work that you've done, the work that I've done, I also recommend Arun Kunanani's book, The Muslims Are Coming, to just like think about how something like this can evolve over a very short period of time. It means then we can also dismantle it, right? And so that's the thing that I, I also will say as an action for us to really think about and not accept the inevitability of the homeland security state. There we go. Um, Mizui, where can people, where can people find you and find, uh, um, the different places you work or your work, um, where would, where would you be, where would be the best place? Um, they can go to our website, surveillanceresistancelab.org. We have a contact form there. Um, and yeah, drop us a note there. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mizui. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Todd. And thanks again so much for your work in the Border Chronicle. You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.